Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Well, uh, you know, John 21 is such an interesting chapter that uh, John includes in this book. Uh, because in a lot of ways, John could have ended this book in the previous chapter. The last two verses of John 20 could have really been a nice you know, ending to the whole scene of John's gospel. Uh, I mean, think about it. We looked at it last week on Easter Sunday. Jesus has risen from the dead. There's an empty tomb. The disciples, all of Jesus' followers are in despair when really it's an incredible triumph. The empty tomb, it was not bad news, it was good news. It meant Jesus was alive. He appears to his disciples, and boom, it just kind of sets the tone. What a great way to end the book. Um, You have Jesus' triumphant resurrection and victory. And John even ends chapter 20 by saying, And truly Jesus did many other signs, this is the end of chapter 20, in the presence of his disciples, Jesus did many signs, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, then be- and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, what a great way to end it. He could have put like a big amen there. Uh, but what's amazing about John is that it doesn't end there. It's kind of like, um, we were talking earlier, it's, it's kind of like the end of a Marvel movie, you know, where it's like, don't leave after the end scene, or even, you know, when the credits start, because there's always like that secret sneaky scene at the end of those Marvel's, Marvel movies. Well, this, it's not sneaky, but chapter 21 is like that. It's a much-needed chapter in our Bible. It's a much-needed chapter in the Gospel of John, and it's the story of Jesus's the account of Jesus' restoration of Peter. You know, John is a really good friend to Peter. John's a, that's why I think he's included this. Uh, him, and, him and Peter, they kind of have this, this spiritual sibling rivalry. They have this brotherly contest thing going on. In the previous chapter, John, he, he mentions that he outruns Peter to the tomb. You know, they, they kind of have this, this classic brotherly contest thing. But John still is a good friend and, and brother to Peter. And so here in this chapter... He wants us to see that just as much as Peter publicly denied Jesus, he wants us to see that Jesus publicly restored Peter. I love that he wants us to see Peter in this incredible light uh, that we see here in this chapter. And so let's read through it, okay? John includes this chapter. It tells us in verse 1, After these things... Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This is also the Sea of Galilee. Same thing. Jesus shows himself again. That's what Jesus has been doing, right, at this point, um, which is awesome. Resurrected Jesus is presenting himself alive to all of his followers. Hey, I'm here. I I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Um, Check me out. That's awesome. So he shows himself now again to his disciples. It tells us in verse 14 that this is going to be the third time that he presents himself alive. And it tells us that this is the way that he showed himself. How did he show himself to his disciples? Uh, It tells us that Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. You got seven of these disciple compadres hanging out. And Simon Peter says to them, I love this, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Um, it's kind of a weird time if, we're, if we could be 
you know, sympathetic. It's a weird time for the disciples right now. I mean, Jesus is alive, but they're also doing a lot of waiting. He's kind of doing these pop-in cameos, presenting himself alive, and the disciples are, they haven't really been given their full instructions yet. They've been told a lot to, to wait, and just kind of waiting, and Peter is like, I'm, I'm going to go fishing, and this is what, you know, some people have kind of harped on Peter for this, like, you know, he's re- reverting back to his old, old lifestyle of fishing, you know, like fishing is like super sinful, um, but really, Peter's just being practical, like, they've got to eat, they've got to, their living now is not coming from doing ministry on the road with Jesus, like, Peter's like, I, I'm going to go fishing, I'm going to, I got to make a living, both to eat and to sell, probably, um, but notice the leadership of Peter, as Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, uh, perhaps it was a brash uh, move of his to just kind of go and, and be busy. I don't know. But uh, the next verse says that they said to him, we are going with you also. That just shows the leadership of Peter. He's like, guys, I'm going to go fishing. They're like, okay, I guess we'll come and, and tag along with you. Um, so all six of them follow Peter. It says, then they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. So they're fishing at night in the Sea of Galilee and they are doing a lot of casting and not a lot of catching, okay? Um, and so that's what happens here. It says this, but when the morning had come, so they were fishing all night, Jesus stood on the shore. So here's the resurrected Jesus standing on the shore. It tells us that Jesus is, it's verse eight, tells us he's 200 cubits away, which is 100 yards, 300 feet. He's a football field away from them on the shore. And Jesus is there on the shore, Yet the disciples didn't know that it was him, which makes sense. I mean, it's early morning. You have the dawn light. He's 100 yards away from them. And also, he's the same Jesus, but a different Jesus. That's kind of the way that the Bible describes um, the resurrected condition of Jesus and our resurrected condition. 1 Corinthians 15 talks all about how our physical bodies are going to be sown in incorruption and are sown in corruption and raised in incorruption. And we're going to be conformed to the same glorious resurrected body of Jesus. That's Philippians. And so Jesus, he's in a new state, a new physical state. Uh, so maybe those are some of the reasons why they're not able to know that that's him 100 yards away. It could also be, I don't know, that they're 100 yards away. For the most part, I feel like I can recognize people I know from like super far distances. Like if I really know you, like I'm, Russ is here, I'm thinking of Russ. I feel like I could spot Russ from a solid three football fields away. Just maybe by the way he walks, you know, I don't mean to be, I'm not like mocking your walk, but I'm just saying like if I saw you, I feel like I would be able to recognize you. Anyway, they couldn't tell it was Jesus, okay? I'm not any better than the disciples, but I'm just saying. All right, verse five. Then Jesus said to them, I love that he's from the shore. He asked this question, children, have you any food? In other words, what'd you catch? Have you caught anything? Now, I love that Jesus is asking this because he knows that they haven't caught anything, but he wants them to acknowledge the fact that their nets are empty. And they said to him, no. So he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Have you caught anything? No. Well, here's what you need to do. You need to cast your net from the left side. You need to move it and cast it. Those boats are about seven and a half feet wide. Cast it seven and a half feet over here. Now, that's, in the natural, that's pretty ridiculous advice. Like, if you're fishing over here and you're not catching anything all night, it's not going to make much difference if you turn this way and cast and fish over here. But Jesus tells them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will 
find some. So it says that they cast. And now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Jesus gives some good, adv- good fishing advice here. They cast on the right side of the boat. Some people have tried to find like some hidden, hidden symbolism behind the right side. And what does that mean? I just, I don't think there's anything there personally. But, but the point is they, they catch the fish when they listen to Jesus. It says, therefore, uh, they, were, they were not able to draw it in because of all the fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He says to Peter, it's the Lord. That's Jesus. Now, why did they know this? Why were they able to identify Jesus in this way? Well, it's because this miracle, if you can call it a miracle, a miraculous catch of, of fish, it mirrors a similar work that Jesus did in the disciples' lives in Luke chapter 5 when he first called Peter, James, uh, and John, the fishermen. When he first called them and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men, the same thing happened. He was on their boat, and he said, hey, cast your net in. This is Luke 5. And the disciples go, Jesus, we've been, you know, appreciate it. Like, I think you're a great teacher, but remember, you're a carpenter, not a fisherman, okay? So this is a carpenter giving advice to fishermen, and you're telling us to throw our nets in. And I just got to say, we've been fishing all night, and we've caught nothing. And so, but Peter says, nevertheless, at your word, and he throws down his net, and his nets, the nets of the, of the, of the, the boat, uh, the fishing nets, get so full that they break, and the boat almost sinks. Peter falls down at the feet of Jesus and humbly repents for not trusting him in his heart. And it's, it's, it mirrors that, okay? And so they, they go, it's almost like that miracle makes them go, oh my gosh, that's Jesus, like just by the work that he did. It's, it's kind of like how the Lord, I think, shows himself in our lives today. It's, it's not through, I, I mean, it would be sweet if the way that we saw Jesus today is he was walking on the shore where we're at the beach when we're allowed to go back there in the right timing so we're not crazy like Jacksonville. But, you know, in the right time when we could see it, you know, that would be cool to see Jesus in that way. But most of the time we see Jesus like the disciples did here through the familiarity of his work in our lives. We go, wow, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. And that's how they noticed him. Now, notice this. We love Simon, okay? What we notice, and this is kind of a theme in John, is that between John and, and Peter, Simon Peter, John is usually first to things, like he's first to the tomb. He's first to notice that this is Jesus. But Peter usually goes, though he comes later, he usually goes farther, right? So, so with the tomb, John saw that it was empty first, but he only barely peeked his head in. Peter came second, and he full-on goes into the tomb. And here, John notices that it's Jesus first, but Peter tells us he goes further. He says, it says that when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it. Now, Maybe you had to be there. I don't know what was going on with that, okay? Probably was toiling all night and, and took off his outer garment because he's working hard, and so he's like, man, I need some breathing room here. And so it tells us that he puts it back on, and notice this, he puts on his garment, and Peter plunges into the sea. It's the Lord. Peter goes, oh my goodness. He puts on his outer garment and jumps into the water. Now, a few thoughts here. Why did he put on his outer garment? Like, let me put on this big, heavy, wet blanket while I swim 100 yards. I don't know. I think Peter was just so drawn in by the appearance of Jesus that it's like it's going against even natural wisdom. He's like, I'm putting on this outer garment. He jumps in. Now, was Peter passionately plunging toward the Lord? Was Peter trying to walk on water again? I don't, maybe. Maybe he's like, oh, it's the Lord. Here I go. And he just plunges. I don't know. 
But we see the passion and the devotion of Peter when he sees the Lord. Peter, he has this realization. He jumps in the water. It says, but the other disciples came in the little boat. Peter jumps in the water, starts, starts swimming to shore. The other disciples, they come on the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 100 yards, it says, dragging the net with fish. So they got the ones with the fish. Peter's like, I don't care about the fish. I don't care about anything. I just care about Jesus. I'm diving into the ocean with this wet blanket on, maybe trying to walk on water. It says, then as soon as they had come to land, this is interesting, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught. So here's, they come to shore and what's Jesus doing? Jesus is making breakfast on the beach. That is Awesome. I bet you this was the best breakfast anyone has ever eaten. Imagine if Jesus made, resurrected Jesus made breakfast for you. And he's there and there's coals on the beach. And he is over it cooking some fish that he already had and bread. And he says, come, bring what you have and come eat. Uh, or bring some of the fish which you've caught. So Peter hears Jesus say that. Hey, bring some of your fish. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus is making breakfast. He goes, hey, let me bring the fish that you've caught. I, I love this. This is so interesting. The net is so heavy that the disciples are having trouble dragging it to shore. Uh, but history tells us that Peter was, wasn't no, no tiny man, that he was a bit burly. He's the oldest. He's likely the strongest as a, as a muscular fisherman. And so Peter himself grabs the net. Like, he's just driven by sheer adrenaline right now and passion. And he's dragging the net himself. It says that it has 153 large fish. Now, was every fish large? Seems like it. I don't know. How much did they weigh? Could this, this could well, be well over 200, almost 300 pounds that, that Peter's pulling into shore. A, a lot of people have, uh, had, fun with, uh, have had fun with the, the number 153. What could it symbolize? The numerologist could entertain you, I'm sure, and just lead you into empty rooms that lead to more empty rooms, to be honest. Um, where the Bible's silent, we should be silent. Um, the simplicity of the gospel is important. I do think it's interesting, out of all that I read, the most interesting insight to the number 153 was that at that time, Jerome, an ancient writer, said that that was the amount of known uh, fish species in the world at that time, was 153. So that's kind of cool. I mean, should we think too much of it? Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. Was Jesus saying, hey, I want you to go and reach all the species of the world, you know, all the people of the world? He could have been. Uh, but 153 fish, they, they, they bring him to shore. Peter, rather, drags him to shore by himself. And Jesus says to them, and I imagine he's looking at Peter when he says this, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? So there was something about him that was kind of unrecognizable in a sense, but they didn't dare to ask, who are you? They knew who it was. They knew that it was Jesus. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. He's sharing a meal with his disciples, breakfast on the beach with Jesus. It's like brunch even. It's like early morning. Well, brunch is later. Early morning breakfast on the beach with Jesus. Verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So verse 15 says that when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, this is in front of everyone there at the breakfast table on the beach, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep. He said to, them, said to him now a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? It says Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Um, probably, likely, because this symbolizes the three times that Peter denied Jesus. And so now Jesus is asking Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter is grieved at the third time, at the third question. And Jesus, after asking this, hears Peter say to him in verse 17, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, Jesus says to Peter, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. This is a euphemism for crucifixion. You will stretch out your hands and another will gird you or bind you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And history tells us that Peter was martyred in this way. This is the death that he experienced. He was crucified. And history also tells us that when Peter was led to be crucified, he asked and requested to be crucified upside down because uh, he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. And Peter, just as Jesus promises here, is crucified um, with his arms stretched out after, uh, after only watching his own wife be crucified as well. Very, very tragic and horrible. But Jesus tells Peter this. And it's amazing because in, uh, as we follow Peter's life in the book of Acts, I think this promise sustained him because Peter has many run-ins with death in his life. Um, it's almost like Peter knowing how he was going to die and that he was going to die when he's old, which is what happened. It, it's like it, in Acts 12 when Peter's in jail and he's chained to a bunch of guards and he's, Herod has already given the sentence for him to be killed in the morning. And the Bible says that Peter's in jail, chained to two guards, and he's sleeping. It's like, he's just like, yeah, whatever. Sentence of death, whatever. I'm going to die when I'm old. Okay, Jesus told me. It's, it's, and I wanted to say this. It's amazing what the promises of God can do in our lives. When we really grab onto them, we really believe them. Death can be staring us in the face. But when we know what God has said, we can sleep. We can be at peace. That's just amazing. We see that in Peter's life. Now, Jesus says this to Peter. Then he spoke, he said this, uh, signifying what death he would glorify God. The end of verse 19 says, and when he had spoken this, the end of verse 19 there, when he had spoken this, he had said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's way of referring to himself. He saw him following, who had also leaned on his breast at the supper, John 13. And, and uh, he said this, Peter said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter seeing him, sorry, that's what John said in John 13. Verse 21 says, Peter seeing him said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus says, follow me. And Peter says, well, what about this guy? I, I know that's going to happen to me, but what about him? And Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? In other words, what is it, what is it to you? I told you to follow me. I didn't say you to follow me depending on what happens with John. Just follow me. What's it to you? He says, you follow me. Now, it says that this saying went out. The game of telephone happened. And uh, this saying went out among the brethren that, that this disciple, John, would not die. Yet, Jesus didn't say that he wasn't going to die, but that if 
as we just read, if I will that he remain till I come, what is it to you? Now, this is kind of a saying that goes out. Now, look at how John ends. He says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He says, amen. There's so much that Jesus did, so much that John says that there there isn't enough libraries in the world. What a, a great poetic way to say, you can't even begin to contain what, if you were to document all that Jesus did, you, you can't even begin to contain it um, in any physical space. That's how much he did. And John here, he's specific about what he includes. And again, as we saw here, this account of Jesus' resurrection of Peter. Now, I told you earlier that the title of the, the message I want to share from this, as we look back at some application here, is I want us to think today about this idea of the rhythm of restoration. The rhythm of restoration. You know, that's what we saw here in this chapter. We saw a couple great encouraging reminders. The first is, is we saw the encouraging reminder that even righteous people fall, first and foremost. Okay? Righteous people fall. Followers of Jesus, even apostles, people like Peter, fall. We know Proverbs 26, 16 says that a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. That, that being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you don't absolutely blow it. We are in good company with Peter here. Uh, a feller f- follow, fellow follow, fellow falling shorter guy. You know, like we, we are with someone who also, who also blows it. Um, I don't know if you right now, I just wanted you to take a minute. Just think about when's the last time that you came face to face with just a real fall, a real failure. You, you popped off in your anger and you said what you wish you wouldn't. You acted and you slipped up into a situation that you were trying to avoid. You, 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 looking back, you regretted how you responded. You see, we all fall short. And we see here with Peter, we're in good company. Even followers of Jesus fall short. But what we see, here's the other good news, is that we're also in good company with Jesus. Because um, what we see here with Jesus is that Jesus restores. Peter falls, Peter fails, but there's no fall and failure that God cannot restore. This is who God is. In fact, what we often see is that the greater the fall, the greater the failure, the greater the restoration. This is the rhythm that I'm talking about here, this, this rhythm of restoration that you see all throughout the scriptures and all throughout our lives. First, if you just back up, you see that this is the story of creation, that creation is fallen. So creation has been subjected, the Bible says, to futility. But there's this promise that what is fallen will one day be restored. There's this hope of a new heavens and a new earth with no disease, with no sickness, with no consequence of sin whatsoever. It's Acts chapter 5 where Peter talks about the hope of the restoration of all things. That despite what's been broken, God is going to one day bring to complete restoration all things. This is also the story of our lives individually. This is the gospel, right? The gospel is Romans 3.23. It starts with this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
That we might not have been in the garden with Adam and Eve, but we have partaken in the same disobedience. We are, are, are personally, we have received the effects of this fall, and we have contributed, each of us individually, to the fall of men as fallen creatures who have all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen. And the, the thing that we've fallen from is a relationship with God. We've fallen from our unity to him. We've fallen from our connection to him. And everything else, as I said, is a result of that. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus dies upon a cross. He goes and he goes as low as the grave to resurrect in power to bring us who are fallen back to a place of restoration. He, Jesus came and died on the cross to restore what was broken, to restore our relationship to God. It's a rhythm you see in even our salvation. What's fallen can be restored. I don't know how broken your relationship with God is. I don't know how broken your life is today. But if, if Peter shows us anything, if the gospel shows us anything, it's this. There's no fall, there's no brokenness that God can't restore. I don't know how far you might feel from him. I want you to know that even though you don't see Jesus, he's with you. And he wants to restore what's been broken. Now, it's not just true of the world. It's not just true of salvation, this is true, as I said, in the lives of followers of Jesus. Um, this is, I think, one of the main pathways that God grows us and sanctifies us in our lives. It's through this process of fall and restoration. Uh, Christianity is not this thing that you kind of sign up and say, okay, God, you forgive me of all my sins, and now I'm just going to climb the steps of goodness and become better and better each day of the week until glory. I'm just going to become a better person step by step with perfect behavior and perfect obedience. Uh, no, in fact, it usually looks the opposite. Usually what happens is you get saved. You, get, you know, I've seen this happen a lot where people get saved and they're just, they, they're, they're just living in the joy of the Lord. And then you go on this sprint of obedience and you're not doing all the extreme horrible things you used to do. And so you kind of feel like, all right, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great person now. And God has certainly changed you and he changes our hearts. But sometimes the, the hardest thing that can happen is you hit this wall of failure. You're like, whoa, I never thought I would do that. Or do that again, or, or live in that behavior, or be stuck in this situation. And it's been well said that, listen, as a follower of Jesus, failure should not be and cannot be fatal. It must not be fatal. See, it's about continuing. It's about growing. You see, a righteous man may fall seven times, but the question is, will you rise again? You see, if we allow it like Peter does here, sometimes failure is the pathway to growth. It's a pathway to success. Why? Because we have a God who restores. And this is the rhythm that we often see in our lives. We see falling, repenting, and being restored. And that's what Martin Luther said is actually the whole of the Christian life. It's one of repentance. The whole of the Christian life is one where we're, we're transformed from glory to glory, not by one awesome decision to the next, but often through, through repenting and going, Lord, I... I I didn't even realize I, I was falling short in this way. And God continually restores us and renews us and rebuilds us. I want you to see Psalm 37. Psalm 37 says that the steps of a good man, this is not just a righteous man, this is a good man, are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. This is a good man following after the Lord. Notice this, though he fall, even good men fall, even, even good men fail, even men who are who are walking in a way that God's delighted in their lives, they blow it. But notice this, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. 
is, I mean, that's like Peter's testimony right there in that verse. Peter fell short, but Jesus restored him. Uh, you know, this is, I want to also say this, that this is God's heart for the church. This should be our heart for each other. It's Galatians 6.1, where, where Paul writes the church of Galatia. It's in a, in a region there, and he says, Brethren, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, if anyone is caught in a sin, if anyone blows it, if anyone stumbles like Peter and denies the Lord, he says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And notice this, with humility, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Considering yourself, that's the heart there. We as a, as a church community, we should have this culture of humble restoration because we know that there's gonna come times where we're gonna need that same restoration. We know that there, there has been times in our lives and there will be times in our lives where we're gonna blow it, where, where we're, gonna have to, we're gonna have to need someone to come alongside and lift us up. Uh, it's, it's Ecclesiastes says, woe to the man who falls and no one's there to pick him up. And that's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to be in where you're, you're constantly kicking people when they're down. And so when you find yourself in a situation where you're down, because you've pushed everyone away, you're not able to reach out for help. And we don't ever want that to be true of our lives. We want to always be willing to, like Peter, man, come to the feet of Jesus. It's repentance and say, Lord, restore me. And then, and then us extend that to those around us. Uh, that's the heart of God. That's what I'm trying to point out here. God's heart is always to restore. Now, restoration might not always look the same. You might not always be restored into the same position. You might not always be restored into the same exact circumstance. But the most important thing about restoration is relationship with Jesus and relationship with a church, with God's people. And so we see here uh, this important truth about that. And as we looked at this narrative and we saw God restoring Peter, what I think we saw was a, this rhythm of, of what we see God doing in our lives. I wanted to just point out a few things that we saw. Uh, as Jesus is restoring Peter, and as he wants to restore us in our lives, not if we blow it, but when we blow it, and I, and I want to say this too, I'm you know, full of comments today, but I got another little th thought for you. You know, uh, um, there's different kinds of falls. Falling is a part of the journey. And, but there's different kinds of falls. Like right now, I think of my son Judah who's learning how to skateboard. And by learning, I mean like, he's pretty good for a six-year-old. And now that uh, everything's been closed, we've been able to street skate a little bit more without getting kicked out of, of anywhere, uh, parent of the year. But um, uh, Judah, you know, as I took him out last week to go skating, he, he ate it pretty bad. And uh, he did like a full-on head-first tumble roll, wearing a helmet. Okay, um, but he, and he got up and it was like he went right back and did the trick over again, right? Now, I've had, that's how I learned how to skateboard. I'm, now I'm learning it the hard way and I'm, I'm trying not to fall as much by not skating as much because it, it hurts more when I fall now. A lot more of a fall going on. Um, but, um, you know, growing up, that's how I learned. Falling is a part of growing. And what I also learned is that there's different kinds of falls. Like, I have had some falls that I couldn't just get up from and go try the trick again, but I was out for a considerable amount of time. The same is true with our lives spiritually. Like, man, I, I wonder what kind of fall you've had. I wonder how big the fall was. I wonder how bad the fall is. You know, it's all a fall, but there's different consequences. And with Peter here, here's the hope that I want us to see. Was, this was a big fall. This was him publicly denying Jesus three times, publicly, saying, no, I don't even know him. 
I don't want anything to do with him. Talk about falling. Talk about failing as a follower of Jesus. But look at what Jesus does. As Jesus restores, that's the hope. No, there's no fall too bad that Jesus can't restore. Here's what we see. The first thing we see Jesus doing with Peter that he'll do with us when we fall is the first thing Jesus does is he reminds Peter of his need for, uh, for, for Jesus. And that's what he'll do in our lives. He'll remind us of our need for him. This is where restoration starts. And here, how does he do it? He reminds Peter through a fishing scenario where uh, reminding him of a previous miracle Uh, Peter goes out on his own. He goes, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go catch. And he's left empty. When Jesus shows up, the nets are full. Uh, Peter is first, and that's why he plunges into shore. He goes, man, this is the reason why I started following Jesus in the first place. Because I encountered the difference that he makes in my life. When I'm following his way, when he's in my boat, when, when I'm trusting in him and walking with him, my nets are full. When I go out and do things on my own, my nets are empty. My life is empty. And I want to say that's the first step to restoration is recognizing that. You, you got to begin by saying, Lord, I understand and I feel the effects of doing life on my own. The consequence of that is I'm empty. Um, it was Spurgeon who said that um, in repentance that a man's, uh, the man's repentance should be as public as his sin and renowned as his sin. And there needs to be that same with us where we go, listen, as much as I've fallen short, there's got to be, God, there's got to be that in my heart, this recognition that I see it. I see the effects of it. I, I see how, how, how lacking I am when I'm cutting you out of my life. And that's what Peter sees. That's what the Lord reminds him of first. He reminds him of his need. That when Jesus is in my life and I'm trusting and following his way, my nets are full. But when I'm doing my own thing, I'm left empty. That's the first thing. The second thing that, that we see is that Jesus receives us. He does this with Peter. He receives Peter into relationship with him. So Peter sees this recognition that this is Jesus. He jumps into the water, plunges into the sea, swims to shore, and there's Jesus. This is beautiful. Making breakfast, and he invites the disciples to come eat with him, even Peter. I, I imagine specifically Peter, as he's the one and goes and gets the fish to contribute to the meal. There's a couple incredible things going on. Uh, first, we need to recognize that when you invite someone to eat with you in that culture, it's a sign of relationship. It's communion. And, and Jesus is saying to Peter, I forgive you. I love you. In fact, that's even the way a gesture that you would offer to someone if they have harmed you, the way that you would offer them forgiveness is you say, well, come into my house and I'll make you a meal. It's a gesture of forgiveness. And here's Jesus receiving Peter. Peter has rejected Jesus, but despite how much Peter has disassociated from Jesus, Jesus is not disassociating from Peter. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like, Lord, for how many times I reject you, why would you still receive me? Why wouldn't you reject me? And here's the nature of our God. He's forgiving. So the forgiveness of Jesus on display here. He receives Peter. And notice where he does it. This is really interesting. He does it over breakfast that's being cooked over some coals. When we looked at Peter in John chapter 18, he denies Jesus, and then he finds himself warming himself over 
some coals. I learned a couple weeks ago from a friend that this is the only other time that that word coals is mentioned in the New Testament. It's these two cases. Peter's over coals as he's warming himself with the enemy after denying Jesus. And now Jesus is on the beach. And I think it's intentional that he used, Jesus is using coals. And Jesus is saying, Peter, come. And even though you've rejected me, come get warm. Come eat a meal. This is who God is. This is what the cross displays that Jesus has fully paid for whatever sin you've committed. Jesus has fully bridged the gap between your fall and your relationship with God. So here's the first thing that we need to do. We need to receive this. We need to come to Jesus. We need to accept the fact that he's accepted us. It's Romans 15 where Paul says, therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us. That's Romans 15, 7. Receive one another just as Christ has received us. Have you sinned? See your Savior. See him there on the beach calling you to relationship with him. He receives us. What's restoration look like? He reminds us of our need. He then receives us into relationship with him, always with an open, loving embrace. And then this is a, a, big, a big one as well. Thirdly, we see him recall, recalling Peter with humility towards him. As we read that account there, after they've eaten breakfast, uh, now we see Jesus, in his restoration of Peter, he's recalling him. He's recalling him to follow him, and he's recalling him to ministry, but he's doing it now, seeking to produce greater humility in Peter's heart. Now, I think it's important to point out, this this word recall is really interesting, Um, Jesus, the way Jesus recalls us is different than the way that culture recalls things. Uh, When culture recalls something, what they're doing is they're revoking something that's broken and they're taking it off the market. That's one way that something can be recalled. You've blown it, you've fallen short, you're defective, I'm recalling you, right? And sometimes I don't know if you felt that way, like, Lord Jesus, you should recall me as a follower. Like, you're using me, but I constantly blow it, I'm a doofus, Um, take me off the market, you know, like take me out of the opportunity to be used by you. And God doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that with Peter. What what an amazing display of how Jesus recalls us. He recalls him back into the ministry. He recalls him back into discipleship. You know, there's another way that something can be recalled is it's received back by the supplier and the producer, and it's remanufactured, it's fixed, and what's defective is healed, and it's restored, and it's put back into place. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. He's saying, Peter, come here. Let me work on a few things with you. I'm not taking you off the market. I'm fixing you so that you can be more effective for me. Now, I just need to say, I think in light of that, there there are many cases where people are in positions of ministry, they fall short, they fall, um, um, they fall into sin, and they disqualify themselves from leading properly, and there is a process. There, there, there is, uh, you read First Timothy, and there's this clear thing that's laid out for how public sin, how, how a leader should be dealt with with sin, and how that process should look like, restoration. But God's heart is always restoration. It might not be back into that same platform, but even if you're not restored into the same platform of ministry, what the gospel says is that God still wants to use you. God always wants to use. He always cleans the fish that he catches, you know? He always wants to to put you back into service. And we see that with Peter here. He's recalling Peter. And this is amazing because, like, 
I'll be honest, like, if, if I didn't know that Peter was Peter, and he was just like a Christian, and like, I learned that within a week prior, that this person, um, say that somebody's coming and they want to volunteer at the church, you know, and they, I don't know, all right, and they want to be a, a stand at the door and greet you, and we find out the week prior that they had actually been denying Jesus, I don't know if I'd say, well, come here, you denier of the Lord, perfect candidate to represent our church, and like, it's amazing the grace displayed here, isn't it? Like, I wonder if Jesus is, a lot, is much more graceful with, with people than we can tend to be. I, I know that that's true, right? He's, he's much more graceful with me than I am with myself. And, and we see this with Peter. Someone that we would disqualify. We'd go, man, he denied the Lord, you know? And Jesus says, you're gonna still lead my church. You're gonna still carry on the mission forward. Let me say it again. There are cases where it's like, there's other, probably other things that Peter could have done that maybe would have disqualified him from leading in this way. But what is the theme of the Bible? The theme of the Bible is that God uses broken people. He uses people like David and Moses and Noah. I mean, you just go through the story. You see all the ways that they're messed up. And this, these are the people that God calls and uses. But here's why. Not, it's, it's not so that... Um, it's not so that they can just say, hey, check me out, I'm broken, but it's so that God can display his power through them. And that's what we see with Peter here. We see Jesus recalling him, but now he's doing it with humility. There's something about a fall. When you bleed and you fall short and you're not as awesome as you thought you were, and people see that. Maybe you've been trying to have this persona of having it all together, but when you're real about your condition, there's a true humility that happens. And that's seen here in Peter. So now as Jesus calls him, he deals with Peter's pride. Uh, Previous to this fall, uh, Peter is notorious in in, uh, the gospel of of Matthew uh, when Jesus is telling his disciples that he's about to be crucified and that they're all going to scatter. They're all going to leave him, okay? Peter's response is, even if all are made to stumble because of you, this is Matthew 26, 33, he says, I will never be made to stumble, Lord, this is what he says, I love you more than all of these disciples. Even if they forsake you, talk about, this is one of the ugliest, I think, forms of of sinfulness. It's spiritual pride. I got it all together. Spiritual pride. Even if, it's like, it's like he's proud of his love for the Lord. I love, I love you so much more than them, Jesus. I'll never leave you. And Jesus goes, yeah, you're, you're going to deny me three times. So now what's the first question he asks Simon here at the beach? He says, Simon, do you love me more than these? What a question. I mean, you said you did. And, and Peter's thinking about it. And it's interesting because Jesus actually asks him, do you agape me? That's the Greek word. It's a different word than Peter's response. Do you agape me more than these? Do you, love, do you really love me unconditionally more than these? And Peter's, what's amazing here in Peter's response is he's honest. He's more honest because he knows himself more now. He's not boasting in his love. Yes, Lord, I agape you. He says, yes, Lord, he says, I phileo you. It's a different Greek word. It's a different word for love. It means that I have affection for you. Peter's, Jesus is saying, uh, Peter, do you have unconditional sacrificial love for me? You'll give up your life for me? And Peter goes, you, you know that I, I have affection for you. I love you, Lord. He's a lot less boastful. You see it? He's a lot more humble. And as Jesus goes on to ask the question three more times, on the third time, Peter says, Lord, um, you know all things. This is different than what he said in Matthew. 
In Matthew, Jesus said, you all are going to scatter. And Peter goes, Lord, you don't know me, okay? These guys are going to give up on you, but you don't know me. And now Peter goes, you know me. You know, you know what I don't know. You know beyond what I think about myself. And you know how I love you. You know it's not as much as I thought it was, but it's enough to where you can grow it. He's restored. He's recalled here with greater humility towards the Lord. This is one of the greatest things that can come about through our failures. And the last thing we see Jesus doing, we see him, so let's just review this. We see him reminding us of our need when we fall short. We see him receiving us into relationship with him through his forgiveness and love. We see him recalling us with humility now towards him. And the last thing we see with Peter is we see Peter refocused, zeroed in now on walking with Jesus, refocused on walking with him. He tells Peter, this is how you're going to die. And he tells Peter simply, follow me. Follow me. I've recalled you. Now focus on me. I've restored you. Now walk with me. This is always what's going to come out on the other side of restoration, a greater focus. Greater focus on what matters most. And notice how Peter's focus starts to wander a bit. And look at the question he asks. After Jesus says this, Tells him what kind of death he's going to die. Follow me to your deathbed is what Jesus tells Peter. Here's how it's going to happen. Follow me to the end, Peter. And he looks, he sees John walking in the background, and he says, but Lord, notice this question, what about this man? What about him? And Jesus says, what's it to you? That's not the point. That's not the focus. Focus on me. What an interesting question. I wonder what else could be filled in the blank for us. Jesus says to you, he says to me, Follow me. Just follow me. And we say, like Peter, Lord, but what about this? Fill in the blank. Maybe it's not what about this person. Maybe it is. Lord, but what about this person and what they're doing to me? Follow me, he says. Lord, but what about this problem? He says, follow me. Lord, what about this pandemic? He says, follow me. What about this? What about this? What about this? You know, whatever the what about this is that we bring to the Lord, he always refocuses on what we need the most. Follow me. Just follow me. What is the thing right now that you're going, well, what about just follow me, Jesus says. He says, follow me. You know, I was thinking about this. Jesus, as he refocuses, he's like the autofocus in our relationship with him. He's constantly wanting to bring things back into focus. The camera you're looking through right now has an autofocus on it that we've been having to learn and get used to. And a couple weeks ago, you might remember one of these, uh, these services where uh, we had these, these like hyper-detailed, beautiful Easter vases behind us. I think it was Good Friday. And every now and then when I would step out of the frame, because there was so much detail that, to them, it would, they would come into focus and I would go blurry. Um, and so I had to like learn where to stand and block them and wear brighter colors so I could stay in the autofocus. And what the camera does is it's, it's designed to focus on what's there in the center of the frame automatically. And, you know, the Lord is, is doing that for Peter. I wish, you know, I wish I had my own built-in autofocus for the Lord. But I think about it, I think we do. I think that's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is our autofocus. There's so many things in life that are jockeying for our attention. And the Lord says, focus on me. Follow me. There's something about restoration that will produce that.